We are talking about the timing of the book of Joel, and I mentioned it was important simply because I think one of the judgments that's being alluded to is the Babylonian judgment that happens in 586 B.C. And because that was an imminent threat in Joel's writing, I think Joel must be written prior to that. Now, remember we left off talking about the theology of Joel, and I want to hit four important doctrines that we're going to be looking at. There'll be many others, but these are the four big ones. These are the theological ideas that we're going to be wrestling with. Number one is Joel is responsible for bringing the Israelites back to the covenant. God promised that he would go after the Israelites and punish them for breaking the covenant. But if they would repent and they would return to him, he would give them blessings as well. Second thing we're going to be learning is about the day of the Lord. If there's one idea that comes from the book of Joel, it's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was imminent in his day in the Babylonian judgment. Now in our day, there's also an imminent day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus returns to vanquish his enemies, but to save his people finally and forever. So the day of the Lord is a huge theme. Third, the establishment of Jerusalem. I've mentioned numerous times when we're talking about eschatology, God has promised that his Messiah will one day rule from Jerusalem. And according to Revelation 5.10, we as believers aren't going to just sit on a cloud strumming a harp, but one day we are going to, as it says, reign upon the earth. So the establishment of Jerusalem is important. Number four is the pouring out of the Spirit. If there's one big issue in the book of Joel, and a big promise in the book of Joel, that ends up being fulfilled in Acts, it's the pouring out of the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit is called the sine qua non of the new covenant, without which you're not a new covenant believer. If you don't have the Spirit, you can't come to Christ, and you're not a partaker of the new covenant. So those are the things we're going to be looking at. Now, we left off talking about the covenant and how God promised to judge those who had violated his covenant, namely the Israelites. And remember, we left off talking about the promises that were given at Mount Gerizim in Deuteronomy 28. And then there was curses at Mount Ebal. And there was probably this antiphonal singing of these promises versus the curses. They would shout them back and forth in the original context. Bob pointed that out for us. So we talked about that. And we talked about how God judges covenant breaking. But we left off here. We also are going to see that God is going to restore graciously. And that was a promise also given in the Pentateuch. He said, look, I will do something for you that you can't do for yourself. Let me give you an example. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God commands all of Israel to circumcise their heart. Now, what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It means that you have a heart that's responsive to God, that's repentant, that's one of faith. Well, that's something the Israelites could never do because of their depravity. By the way, you and I can't do that either. And so in Deuteronomy 30, God promises that he would circumcise their heart. In the same way, God promises in the law that if you will repent and return back to me, I will forgive you. But guess what? They never had the ability to even do that. So he would have to graciously act upon them. And we see this promise, for example, in Deuteronomy 32. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32, 36 through 39. And as we read this... This is something that Joel will build off of because God is promised to restore the people of Israel despite themselves. 
Deuteronomy 32, 36 through 39. I'll read that. This is a great promise that God gives to them. Even if they sin, he'll bring them back. He'll be gracious to them. Deuteronomy 32, 36, it says, For Yahweh will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone. Stop there for just a moment. Notice it's not when he sees that they have strength, that they're able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but when their strength is gone. It says, And there is none remaining, bond or free. And he will say, Where are their gods, small g, the rock in which they sought refuge? who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Now, I skip all the way to verse 43. If you can skip to verse 43 there. Notice he says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Notice God has promised that he will avenge the blood of his servants. And that's exactly what Joel promises. The great eschatological battle at the end of the book of Joel is God doing that very thing. He's going to bring the people back and he's going to fight against all of their enemies. Now, let me show you a third thing that we learn from this, that salvation is of God, not of man. That's a big theme to the book of Joel. When you come to the last battle, it's Yahweh who intercedes. He brings all the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat where he destroys them, but he saves his people. You and I don't accomplish that. The United States doesn't accomplish it. No human government does it. It's God alone. We see this promise. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 34, 6. Exodus 34, 6. This is certainly a great truth I think Joel builds off of. Exodus 34, verse 6. If you turn there, remember here Moses is on Mount Sinai and he learns in God's self-disclosure that God is a God of compassion, rich in chaset. We'll talk about that term. Exodus 34, 6. It says, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him, that's in front of Moses, and proclaimed. Now listen how God reveals himself. He's revealing himself in words. He says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now does everyone see the term loving kindness? At least that's how it's translated in the New American Standard Bible. The term loving kindness is the term in Hebrew, chaset. And roughly speaking, it has to do with God's grace and his mercy. So God's covenant love, you might render it that way. So the idea of cassette, oh yeah, Eric has got something. Yeah, I don't know if this is right or not, but I had taken a lot of classes long ago from a, a guy who's a biblical a Hebrew professor. Yeah. And he said that the word chesed, yeah. that it, what it really means is God doing for us what, he, what we can't do for ourselves. In other words, loving yes. kindness. And that theme... I think that's just a neat understanding. I hope he's. Ac- I think he was right, but I don't know. Absolutely, uh, that's God a very doing good definition. For us, what we can't do for ourselves. Absolutely, that's right. It's. Um, I like to say that it's mercy and grace put together. And remember, mercy and grace are really just two sides of the same coin. If God has bestowed His mercy upon you, 
you don't get what you do deserve. But if that's true, it's because he's also been gracious to you where you get his favor that you don't deserve. And both are true. So God's cassette is something that he bestows upon his people merely by his good pleasure. They don't do anything to earn it. They don't do anything to deserve it. It's based solely on his compassion. Uh, A good example of cassette, how many in here remember the story of Mephibosheth? Um, 2 Samuel 9. I know Bob has written a whole article about this um, based off of this. And by the way, it's one of my favorite articles that he's written. It's called Dining with the King. But you can read about Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. Now, Mephibosheth, his original name was Mary Baal. He was actually named after a false god. What ends up being changed to Mephibosheth. Now, the reason he's important is because he's a foreshadowing of Chesed. Now, let me explain why. When David ends up becoming king, remember Saul and Jonathan? They both die in battle on Mount Gilboa. In fact, some of you are going to Israel, you're going to see that mountain. You'll, you'll come to an area called Bet Shean, and they'll say, yeah, that's where it was. That, and so what's so neat about being there is you'll say, oh, yeah, this isn't just a fairy tale. These things happen in history. But Jonathan and Saul both fell. Remember, David had a covenant with whom? He had a covenant with Jonathan. They were great friends. And in their covenant, they bestowed cassette upon one another. They bestowed a love and a promise of mercy and grace to one another. So after Jonathan and Saul die, David wonders who he could bestow this cassette upon in the family of Saul and Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. Well, his servants are around David, and they say, the only one we can really find is this crippled boy. He was probably a man at the time named Mephibosheth. Now, what's interesting is the term Mephibosheth literally means a shameful one. That's the root of Bosheth. And so he's a shameful one. And you know where he comes from? He comes from a place called Lodavar, which literally is no pastor. If you and I were to put it in our vernacular, he comes from nowhere. He's a shameful nobody from nowhere. And he's crippled. And what's more, in the ancient Near East at that time, if the king comes to his throne the most likely thing he's going to do is to kill all potential contenders to that throne. So Mephibosheth would be one that would normally be put to death. But he's not put to death. Why? Because David, who is in the lineage of Messiah, who is a man after God's own heart, decides to bestow chesed. Mephibosheth the cripple should die, but David doesn't make him die. But can you imagine the day Mephibosheth is brought by David's servants. He's crippled. He can't get there himself. He's brought to David's throne room, as it were. And can you imagine? He probably thinks, this is it. I'm going to be put to death. After all, the king gets rid of any rivals to the throne. But instead, what does David say? He says, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table forever. And you remember the great response of Mephibosheth? It's a response that I think every Christian should have. He says, who am I but a dead dog? that I should eat at the king's table forever. The whole point is you have someone who's a cripple who should be put to death. You and I are spiritual cripples who can do nothing, who should be put to death by the king as well. Just as Mephibosheth was gotten and brought to the king's table and showed mercy and grace, we'll eat at the king's table forevermore. That's exactly what God does for us. So a great picture of Chesed is the story of Mephibosheth. 
Never forget that story. If you want to know what cassette is, it's what David did for Mephibosheth. That's what God does for us. That's what the book of Joel is about. The whole end of the book of Joel is about what God does for us, not what we do for him. And what's so sad is so much of evangelicalism is focused on what we do for God. But the message of the Bible, the focal point of it, is what he's done for us. That's what it's about. And the book of Joel, I think, will focus us upon that once more. Okay, now let's get to our second idea. And to me, this is the biggest idea of the book of Joel. It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, broadly speaking, it's a time where God intervenes in history to save his people and to judge his enemies. So if you want to know what is the day of the Lord, it's about judgment and it's about salvation. Now, there's at times when Israel, ironically, are the enemies of God because they've broken covenant. And that's when we say, boy, this doesn't make sense. Here you have the covenant people and they're subject to the wrath of God. Yeah, because they broke covenant. As Bob has been showing us, they wanted to be under the demonic realm that owns all of the other nations, according to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, rather than being under Yahweh. So the day of the Lord is certainly about judgment and salvation. Let's talk about the day of the Lord as judgment. Turn your Bibles to Joel 2.11. Please turn your Bibles there, and I'll just show you evidence that, yes, the, the day of the Lord is about judgment. Joel 2.11. And again, the judgment would come in the near term upon the people of God, but in the far term, it always comes upon the enemies of God. And that's what we see also in our day. One day, the enemies of God will be thrown down and the people of God will be saved in the day of the Lord. Joel 2.11, it says, The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. Now stop there for just a moment. What army and camp is being referred to there? Well, I think it's certainly the angelic realm. That's why he's called the, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. And so just as Bob has been showing us all about the divine counsel, remember you have Yahweh, he is the chief of the Elohim, the other gods, small g. And so in the biblical worldview, you have all of these angelic beings who are created beings, they're contingent beings, but they rule in the unseen realm, but Yahweh is over them. And so he has a whole host of armies, a whole host of angels who are part of his army. Now, notice it goes on. It says, For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Now, notice the question. The answer to who can endure it is given in the very next verses. It's those who repent. Those who come back by faith and trust in Yahweh. But other than that, the implication is you won't endure it. That's the idea. So yes, the day of the Lord is certainly one of judgment. Now, let me show you, it's also a day of salvation. And we're going to see that in Joel 2.18 all the way to the end of the book. That yes, God is going to save his people. Now turn though, just to look at what God will do, turn to Joel 3.19 through 21. And this is what God is going to do against his enemies, the enemies of Israel. Joel 3.19 through 21. Notice Joel 3, 19 through 21, God says, Egypt, remember that was an enemy of Israel, Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. 
Now stop there for just a moment. Why is Edom picked on here? Well, remember, Edom, those are the relatives of Esau. They're the descendants. Remember, the covenant and the promises that God gave were through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it wasn't through Esau. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So Esau, his name literally means red. They live in a place, if you go there and you see it from Israel, it looks red. And the very term Edom, Edom in Hebrew, means red. And by the way, Esau got in trouble because he sold his birthright for what? The stew that was red. <laughs> he, he is red stew. He looks red. He lives in the red place. And he ends up being a symbol of God's wrath. And that's why if you look, for example, remember in the book of Obadiah, the great promise is that there's going to be a judgment upon them. Why? Because they're the prototypical enemies of God. Those who were related but didn't want anything to do with the promises of Jacob, they're nothing but a curse to God and his people. So they're going to be a desolate wilderness. And notice it says, because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be, notice the promise, Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. Verse 21, the Lord says, And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for Yahweh dwells in Zion. Where is Zion? That's Jerusalem. So there, in one passage, you see the judgment upon the enemies of God and the salvation of his people. All in in really one passage. Okay, third issue, there's a need to repent and to believe. And that's what we see all the way through the Old Testament prophets. What should we do? We should repent and believe in Yahweh. When you and I are in trouble, when you and I are caught in our sin, we are to flee from it, to make a U-turn in life and go back to our God. And that's the message constantly laid out for the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Notice here in Joel 2.12, I'm I'm hoping your Bibles are still open there. Joel 2.12, notice it says, Yet even now, Yahweh says, Even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. You know, some years ago when I was in seminary, We had a a professor that I really enjoyed because he would uh, get really robust discussions going on in class and we're always opening up our Bibles. Well, one day he divided the class and he says, you half are going to argue that salvation's by faith and the other half you're going to argue that it's by repentance. And you're just going to argue and he says, don't don't matter, don't, don't mind about being wrong. Just argue as fiercely as you can. Well, we would argue as fiercely as we can, and then he'd scoff at the end and say, ha, ha, you jugheads, you don't know it's both. It's both and, and that was the whole purpose, is to show us that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, like grace and mercy. If you've been given God's grace, it's because you've been given his mercy, and if you have his mercy, it's because you've been given his grace. You can't have one without the other. So in the Bible, repentance goes hand in hand with faith. The idea of initial repentance unto salvation is the idea of having a change of mind where you were following sin and idolatry and you turn from that and you come to God on his terms. In fact, the term for repentance, metonaeo, which is the verb, literally means to have an afterthought, to have a change of mind. 
That's the idea of repentance. So I was thinking that I'm going to serve myself, my sin, the world, the demonic, Satan, his domain. But I'm changing from that and I'm coming to God in his terms. And if I come to God in his terms, what am I doing? I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm believing. So repentance and faith go hand in hand. Let me show you an example from the book of Acts. Um, turn your Bibles to Acts 20.21. 20, Acts 20.21. 20, Here's where Paul... Sometimes now the biblical writers will just say repent. And sometimes they'll just say believe. But the implication is if you believe, it's because you repented. And if you repent, you end up believing. But here sometimes they put it together. And that's what you see in Acts 20, verse 21. Here, by the way, is Paul's farewell to the Ephesians. Remember, he warns them that from their own ranks, they're going to have heretics. We're talking about that in 1 Timothy. That's where the heretics came from, where the elders themselves. So here, Acts 20, 21 Paul says, I'm solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks, this is what he was doing, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance is the turning, turning to God, turning from idolatry, and notice faith in whom? In our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so remember faith, we'll break that down in just a minute. Faith has three elements to it. There's the idea that I have knowledge, So part of faith is knowledge. I know who Christ is. I know with the facts, his person and work. The second part of saving faith is mental assent, saying those facts about Jesus are true that are revealed in the Bible. The third part of saving faith is what we call fiducia, which is trust. I know the facts, I know they're true, and it's for me. That's the idea of saving faith. So repentance is turning from idolatry, turning from sin, turning to God, which is faith alone. True saving faith has knowledge. True saving faith has mental assent of the knowledge about Christ is true. True saving faith says, it's for me. Remember in the book of James, even the demons believe and they shudder. They know who Jesus is. They know that the facts are true, but they want nothing to do with them. So that's what saving faith is, and that's going to be a theme that you'll see all the way through the book of Joel. Now, let me turn to the fourth element of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near and far. Now, let me see if I can play this out a little bit. The near and the far is both in the prophet's day, the day of the Lord, and also the far in our day. Okay, it's both near and far in that sense. So the prophet sees the Babylonian judgment as a coming near day of the Lord. It's imminent in his day, but that is a foreshadowing of the future day of the Lord, which is now imminent in our day. So that's how the writers often write. And that's why sometimes we read, we're like, well, wait a minute. Is he talking about his day or the future? And if you read carefully, you'll see sometimes the the author will tell you, but sometimes he's just merely giving you a foreshadowing of the future by telling you the immediate events in his day. In fact, let me just show you an example of this. Turn your Bibles to Joel 2.1. Joel 2.1. I'm going to show you how the day of the Lord was near in his day. Again, turn to Joel 2.1. So as you're turning to Joel 2.1, keep this thought in your mind. In the book of Joel, you have a locust judgment that already occurred. That is a foreshadowing of the northern army that's going to come, namely the Babylonians and the Assyrians prior to them. 
They are a foreshadowing of one day all the nations coming, which is still in our future. So locusts, Babylon, and then all the future enemies of God, that's still in our future. That's how the flow goes. Okay? By the way, for those of you that are going to Israel, on a very clear day, remember Israel is very small. If you look to the north, you can see a distant hue that's kind of bluish. The reason you can often see that is because there's snow on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain, really, in the region. And this was the area that Bob and I believe, more than likely, remember when you read in Genesis 6 that the sons of God came down into the daughters of men? That's more likely where it happened. Now, Mount Hermon throughout the Bible is oftentimes referred to as Mount Zaphon. Again, I'll make the joke, not Zaphon, but Zaphon. It literally means the recess of the north. And the reason it was so ominous is because that's where the enemies of God came from. That's where the demonic realm came from. That's where Baal chose to have his residence. And so Yahweh says, Aha! You have your residence in Mount Hermon. I've chosen mine in Mount Zion. And so there's this battle between Hermon and Zion. And God declares that he's going to throw Hermon down. He's going to throw all the demonic realm down. And all the nations that come ominously from the north, from that area they're going to be thrown down as well. So it's literal. Some people say, was that literal or is it symbolic? Yes. It's literal and symbolic. We don't have to choose between the two. Interesting story. Back in 2008 when I was in Israel, it's surreal when you're there. I was on Mount Carmel where you have Elijah call down the, he calls down fire on the false prophets of Baal. And as I'm standing there, There's an Air Force base, the Megiddo Air Force Base, and an F-16 takes off. And there's no hangars at Megiddo Air Force Base. Why? Because they're within shelling distance from the Syrians. So all their hangars are below ground. And what made me think about it, it was so interesting. I'm thinking there's no Amalekites, there's no Jebusites, there's no Amorites or Canaanites, Amalekites, and all the other Girgasites and all the other ites, right? But there were Israelites, And I saw them still fighting for survival that very day. Um, One of our tour guides, he was a bus driver. And we're up on the Golan Heights, and you'll still see places where you can't walk. They'll say, no, this is off limits because there's still landmines from the 67 war. And I'm talking to this tour guide, and he says, yeah, Eric, do you see right up in that cave? I think that was the cave. Back in 67, I threw a hand grenade up there to kill some Syrians. That's the kind of history that you see in Israel. Why? They're always fighting for survival. The enemies from the north are always trying to get them. Okay, but one day God has promised that he's going to throw them down. So, notice here in Joel 2.1, here's how the day is near. Joel 2.1, he says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That's Zion. That's, That's Jerusalem, right? Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. So you and I might read that and say, wait a minute, how could it be near in his day and be near in our day? Well, it was near in his day because the judgment he's referring to is that of the Babylonians. And sure enough, they did come. In our day, the day of the Lord is near because the next event on God's redemptive calendar is the Lord Jesus Christ coming through the clouds to rapture his people. And after he saves them, he pours out his wrath upon the nations. So it's near 
in our day as well. Now, by the way, I want to, uh, in fact, we'll just turn ahead a little bit. Joel 2.30 through 31. 2.30 through 31. I'll just read this to you. This is where he starts talking about the future day of the Lord. So remember the flow. Locusts foreshadow Babylon, which foreshadows the future day of the Lord. So here he's talking about the future, Joel 2, 30-31. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now there it would seem that we have a precursor. This is about the future day of the Lord. But I've talked about how the day of the Lord can be seen as a broad period of time in Scripture, but sometimes it's limited to a 24-hour period. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, that seems duplicitous. Why would the Bible do that? Well, you and I talk about a day the same way. The example I like to use is that when I asked my grandpa, he lived to be 95, and I remember bringing him to get his hair cut, and I'd ask him, hey, what was the price of gas in your day? Now that's a long period of time. And he would say, and he's talking, he's probably thinking about the 1930s, 40s, 50s. It was a broad period of time. He goes, oh, you could get it for a nickel or a dime or a quarter or whatever it was. But then if I'd ask him, do you remember the day when John Kennedy was shot? He he says, oh, yeah, I know exactly where I was. Now he's limited to a 24-hour period of time. Talking about the gas prices, there's a broad day. Talking about the day Kennedy was shot, there was a 24-hour period. In the same way, the day of the Lord must be conceived of as a broad day. So it begins with the rapture of the church and it extends into all eternity because for all eternity, God saves his people and judges his enemies. And that's why, for example, in 2 Peter 3, Peter can say the day of the Lord comes like a thief. And he also talks about the elements burning up. Well, that doesn't happen until after the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. So yes, there's a broad day of the Lord, but there's also a narrow day. The narrow day, the 24-hour period in which Jesus Christ himself uniquely in history will come and fight for Israel as he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's a unique day. And here it's being referred to in Joel 2, 30-31. Notice in verse 31, it says, The great and awesome day of the Lord. The only other time that same phrase occurs, the, the great and terrible day or great and awesome day, is found in Malachi 4, 5. And both of them are referring to that 24-hour period that occurs when the Messiah fights against the enemies of Israel. That's the narrow day. Okay, so that is still in our future. The near-term judgment that would happen by Babylon was a foreshadowing of that. By the way, jot this down. I won't have you turn to it, but if you want to see a good example of how the prophets show the far-term day of the Lord that's in our future, and they blend it with the near-term day of the Lord in their day, read Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, 1 through 16, just jot this down, Isaiah 13, 1 through 16, is all about the judgment in our future. That's the future day of the Lord that Joel's talking about in Joel 3, where God is going to destroy all the inhabitants of the earth. But to prove that God is good for it, Read Isaiah 13, 17, the next section, 17 through 22. God would send judgment upon the Babylonians at the hands of the Medo-Persians. So it's as if God always says to his prophet, look, there's a far day, future day of the Lord that's coming, but to show you that I'm good for it, to save my people and to judge my enemies, let me do something in the near term. 
That's what God does all the time through the prophets. Yes, Bob. Yeah, sometimes uh, we've explained that the roots of pro- prophecy are in history. Yes. And not only is this true in regard to God's work through Christ and salvation that we're talking about and then bringing judgment. Yes. But in things like Antichrist. Yes. Okay. Because John explicitly says that many Antichrists have gone into the world. Yeah. But then it's also true that Antichrist is coming. Yes. Okay. So in history, you have the principle lived out. Right. And we can see that even in, in church history. Yes. Many Antichrists. Amen. So the reformers said the Pope was the Antichrist. Amen. I would say the Pope is one of the Antichrists. Exactly, one of many. The Antichrist is going to be the one during the great... The beast. Yeah, the beast during the tribulation period. But why would you say something like the Pope's the Antichrist? Because he's created this massive world religion... Yes. That doesn't offer true salvation to anybody. Right, right. And claims to be the anointed one who can sit at the throne and make decrees that are binding on people and claims to falsely speak for God. Yeah. And Antichrist means a false anointed one. Right. Okay, so claiming a false anointing, claiming to speak bindingly for God, claiming to create a kingdom that's not really the kingdom of Christ, but calling it that. There are many reasons why the Reformers said what they did. Yes. But... The real Antichrist is going to be far more perverse, if you can imagine that. But yes, yeah, it will be. Right. It'll be even more perverse. Thank you. You know, and, Bob, and that's do you remember true in a lot of cases? Do you remember some years ago we were at the Fick Auditorium and you gave a Sunday school, and it was about exemplary judgments. Excuse me, exemplar. Exemplary. Ex- thank you. I could not get that out. <laughs> Must be the gum in my mouth. Talk about that because that's important as well when we look at history, that God doesn't judge every sinner right now immediately, but that doesn't mean that he's pleased with sinners yeah. or that his wrath isn't upon Actually, it says that. No, I'd have to have my concordance. Somebody will know where it is. It, was it Peter? Somebody says, yeah. serve as an example for those who are thereafter. Exactly. Wickedly. That's and right. it was if God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah or whatever. Yeah. And so some of the uh, very profound things that happened in history where God directly intervened as for example Sodom and Gomorrah the Bible explicitly says serve as an example Yes, but it doesn't mean and I'll be talking about this in my sermon today because I'm going to cover a lament psalm as one of my applications Psalm 73 Um, we sometimes start thinking well that means that's what God's going to do and then we see all this wickedness going on and we wonder well why doesn't he right but but that that's not a new thought because the Israelites thought that all the time. Exactly, that's right. Habakkuk. Yeah, you know, yeah, or the psalmist. Yeah, or Habakkuk. Yeah. So the point is that God did a certain thing in history that we know about demonstrates the validity of the principle and demonstrates the reason why we can rely on the promise. Amen. That God will rescue the godly from temptation that's and right. will preserve the wicked until the day of judgment. Now, yeah. I wish I knew the chapter and verse in the New Testament where it references back. Yes. Which yeah. one? Jude 1-7 is serve as an example. Okay, Jude 1-7. 
Yeah. And then, you know what? Um, very good. And Second Peter is the same. Bob, thank you for pointing this out because that Sunday school I thought was really important. Here, here's the point. What Bob is pointing out is that in history, you see judgments that come by the hand of the Lord. And you say to yourself, well, why doesn't he do that now? Well, the reason that we see is these are what are called exemplary judgments where God shows through these particular judgments that even though he's not judging every sinner as we speak, his prior judgments show that he one day will again. The two judgments that are often singled out are the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and that of the flood. Now, let me show you where that is. Uh, Mike is absolutely right. One place is in Jude. The one that puts them both together, however, 2 Peter 3. If I can get my eyes to adjust, I'm probably... Oh, do you have it? In 2 Peter 2, there's a big, long if-then argument. Is that what you're thinking of? Let me, I'll read this one. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Uh, 2 Peter 2, starting with verse 4. For if, okay, think about the logic going on here. If, and there's going to be a then eventually. If God didn't spare the angels of sin, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them into, to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment. Now, that was a reference to Genesis, I believe. Yes. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, condemned them to ruin, making them an example, there's our word, to those who are going to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, parenthetically, for as he lived among them, that righteous man was tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard, end of parenthesis. Then, okay, so this mm-hmm. is a sentential logic. If yes, you want to call inference, it right? If, then, if, then, then follows for it. So here's the then, finally. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh, despise authority. So wow. that's a comfort for us yeah. that's grounded in history. Yeah. The actions of God in history show us that judgment will come. But it also comforts us to know that if Lot had to live in a situation that's even worse than we're seeing, which it was, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah, although yeah. America's trying real hard to get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, then certainly God can keep us and comfort us as we have to see things that are very troubling to us yeah, yeah. as we live in history. Yeah, thank you, Bob. And you see the same thing in Second Peter 3. Those judgments, the flood and the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah are often used as prototypical or exemplary judgments. Now, one thing that's interesting is both the flood... And in Sodom and Gomorrah, the precedent that's set in Scripture is the people of God are removed, and then the judgment came. True. So the flood, who was removed? Well, Noah and his family. Now, Jesus says his coming is going to be like the days of Noah. Why? Because the people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, who was removed? 
Lot and his family. Jesus talks about that in Luke 17. As it is in the days of Noah, so it was in the days of Lot. And so the people that were godly are removed, and then the wrath of God comes. Those are exemplary judgments so that you and I know that God is good for the future. So think about it. You're an Israelite. You're living in Joel's day. And you see a bunch of people around you who are no longer obeying Yahweh. They're no longer obeying him. And you think, well, boy, the unrighteous just get away with everything. And here, I'm obeying the covenant. My farm isn't doing that great or whatever the occupation you had. Well, what comfort would you have? The day of the Lord is near. That happened at the hands of the Babylonians. It was in Joel's day. But that was just a foreshadowing of the ultimate day, the future day, in which God was going to rectify things once and for all. So that's how it is. It's the near and the far over and over. So the day of the Lord, that's the biggest idea that you're going to see throughout the book of Joel. Let me go to the next big idea, and that is Jerusalem will be established. Jerusalem is going to be God's, God's city in which the Messiah dwells. And the primary reason isn't just because Jerusalem is somehow greater than any other city. That's not the case. It's not because it's more beautiful or anything else. God has chosen it because he made sure promises to David. So what I want you to see is the connection between David and Jerusalem. So please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. And the reason I want you to turn there is I know many of you are familiar with this passage, but we have new people all the time, and it's good to be reminded. 2 Samuel 7, by the way, you can read about this same promise in 1 Chronicles 17 as well. But turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. So if you ever say, hey, I want to explain to someone why Jerusalem is God's abode, why he's promised to set his flag there, why he's going to establish it forever, go to 2 Samuel 7. And by the way, this is why the Messiah is going to come from David, 2 Samuel 7. So 2 Samuel 7, let's look at verse 14 through 16. Now remember, the context is David wanted to build a house for God. God says through the prophet Nathan, no, I'm going to build a house for you. I don't live in a house that you make. You're going to live in a house that I make. I'm summarizing. 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16. This is the promise that God gives to David. God says, I will be a father. This is to David's son. So the issue is sonship here. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now stop there. Some would say, well, wait a minute. How can this be a reference to the Messiah if, in fact, he's going to sin? Well, it's not a direct reference. Because remember, there's going to be many sons of David like Solomon and all the other kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, etc., that are sons of David, and they will sin. And they're going to be sons of David that are far short of what the Messiah will be. They will need correction. But you're going to see in this promise that ultimately the Messiah, the sinless one, is going to be the one who brings all the promises about. And you'll see evidence. In fact, David, I'll show you, knew that that was the case. He knew that this was about the Messiah, and I'll prove it to you. So notice the immediate sons, though, they're going to be chastised for their iniquity. He's going to correct them with rods and strokes. Notice verse 15, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. Stop there. What's loving kindness? It's chaset. It's chaset. The same chaset that was given to Mephibosheth is going to be given to the sons of David, whether it be Solomon, whether it's Hezekiah, Ahaz, Jehoiakim. 
despite themselves. Even though they're oftentimes faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. His cassette will not depart from them. He says, as I took it away from Saul, I'm continuing on in verse 15, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, now listen to this. Your house, he's saying this to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Aha. How is the throne going to be established forever? In the Messiah, the ultimate son of David, the one who comes and there's no deceit upon his lips. The one who's so pure that when, do you remember when Jesus says to the disciples, cast your nets on this side and the professional fishermen, the disciples are saying, Jesus, give us a little credit. We know how to fish. There's a lot of things we don't get right, but we know how to fish. Luke chapter 5. But sure enough, they do what Jesus said reluctantly, probably. And they haul in 153 fish, and it dawns on Peter again who Jesus is. That he's not just a man, he's the Holy One of Israel. And remember, he says, depart from me, Lord, from a sinful man. Just like Isaiah said when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah 6, he says, Whoa, I'm undone. From a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Right? So Jesus is the Holy One of Israel, and he's the ultimate son of David. To prove to you that David himself knew that this was not going to be fulfilled in Solomon or any of the other children in the immediate future, but it was going to be something for the far distant future for the Messiah, turn ahead to 2 Samuel 7.19. 2 Samuel 7.19. Notice what does David say. And he's talking about all the promises. He's absolutely blown away by the promises that God has given him. You're going to build me a house? I sin against you. You build me a house and a kingdom forever? He's blown away by this. And he says, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes. This was a little thing, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. Stop there. David knew this wasn't going to be fulfilled in Solomon. How? How do we know he knew that? Because it was about the distant future. It's about the Messiah. And notice at the end, very important, he says, and this is the custom of man Oh, Lord God. I don't know what version you're reading from. This is the New American Standard Bible. The term custom there, literally in the Hebrew, is Torah. So a good rendering would be, and this is instruction for all mankind. What's instruction for all mankind? The Davidic promise that God will establish through David his kingdom forever. That's fulfilled in Messiah. David is saying, this is instruction not just for the house of Judah just, or, or for the people of Israel, This is instruction for all mankind. You come to the Son, and you're a partaker of this glorious kingdom that's going to last forever. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you're from Russia. It doesn't matter if you're from the Philippines. It doesn't matter if you're from the United States. If you come to faith in the promises of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be a partaker of this kingdom that will be forevermore. This is why Jerusalem has to be established. Where did David set up his kingdom? In Jerusalem. So do you see that it's more, about, more than just flag and real estate? It's about the promises of God. People say, well, why do you guys get upset as evangelicals when people want to attack Jerusalem? Because they're really attacking the promises of God. Genesis 12, 3, I'll bless those who bless thee, and I'll curse those who curse thee. 
And that's what we see fulfilled in the book of Joel. Why are all the nations judged in the, Joel 3 at the end of the day of the Lord? Because they try to divide up his people and harm the Davidic promises. Let me show you another place where we see the promises given to David. Very important psalm, Psalm 89. I want you to be aware of these very important passages about the Davidic promises. Psalm 89. So three passages in your mind. If somebody talks about David, think of 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 89. Psalm 89, we'll just look at the first four verses. Psalm 89 was written by a man named Ethan. Now, Ethan was a Levitical musician who was probably writing when David had some hardship for perhaps when his son died uh, due to sin in his life. And so what he's going to remind not only David and the, the reader, but also God of the promises. So Psalm 89, 1 through 4. So listen, he says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Stop there. What's the loving kindness Ethan's going to sing of? It's the cassette. So even though David sinned with Bathsheba, even though he suffered the consequences one day of a divided kingdom that is experienced after Solomon, what does Ethan remember? He remembers not how great David was. He remembers Cassette. He remembers the God who just bestows grace and mercy. I will sing of the Cassette of Yahweh forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said... Here's Cassette. Cassette will build up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Does everyone see there in verse 4 the promise, I will establish your seed forever? The term there for seed, Zerah, it has to do with the descendants. The very first time you see that, is back in Genesis 3.15. Remember Adam and Eve sin, and what's the promise? Even though they sin, God promises that from the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman is going to one day crush the serpent's head. And we know because of a pronoun, a third-person masculine singular pronoun, by the way, in, in Hebrew, it's who. Who is he? And you know what he is? And if you say he in Hebrew, it's she. It really is like a who's on first uh, routine. You just get all confused. I was learning Hebrew. I'm like, who is he and he is she? And the guy goes, exactly right. I was, well, who's on first and what's on second? And, you know, I was kind of that thing. But any, anyway, yeah, <laughs> who is he? And so it, that, that pronoun is there in Genesis 3.15 so that you know there's a man. It's not just a plurality of men, but one man is going to be the seed who's going to come from the, the woman and he's going to crush the servant, or the, excuse me, the serpent. One man is the seed, and he's going to crush the serpent. And the rest of Genesis then says he's going to come from Abraham, and he's going to come from Isaac, and he's going to come from Jacob, and Jacob is Israel, and Israel has 12 sons, and of all the sons of Israel, the tribes, he's going to come from Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. And of all the families of the tribe of Judah, 2 Samuel 7, you did, we just read about it. Of all the families within Judah, he's going to come from David. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. Messiah comes on the scene of history. Where does he come from? All those. Jesus is the only one. He's the one who fulfills all those things. So that's the promises. The promises that are given to David are the messianic promises. Okay, now 
Let's just keep going here for the sake of time. God is going to judge Jerusalem in the short term. How do we see that? Well, in the book of Joel, it's the locusts, followed by the Babylonians, followed even in our day by the enemies that surround Jerusalem. But at the very end, the Messiah comes, the son of David. And he says, that throne's mine. And he wipes out all the enemies. But there's going to be a short-term judgment. Just as you and I sin, and sometimes God has to chastise and discipline us in providence. Providentially, he rules all of history. He also does it for his people, Israel. And so he judges them in the short term. God will establish Jerusalem in the long term. And that's what we see. Turn again to uh, Joel three sixteen through 17. We'll finish here. Well, we got, a, we got it six minutes. I guess we can do a little bit more. Joel three sixteen through 17. Joel three sixteen through 17. Notice what the promise is. And again, this is about what he's going to do in the future. It says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So stop there for just a moment. Notice the synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism means the same thing is being stated. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So there you can see Zion and Jerusalem are one and the same. God's roaring and uttering his voice are one and the same. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. All right, now, here's one question I think we have to wrestle with. Today, as you and I speak, there's a lot of Christians who don't believe that God is going to literally reestablish Jerusalem once again and that Messiah will literally reign for a thousand years. In fact, I dealt with that a little bit when I was talking about the problems with the Reformed tradition. We have a lot in common in the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of election, but many in the Reformed tradition say there is no millennial kingdom, that the only Jerusalem that we have to look forward to is the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, before we poo-poo it, realize, and I do disagree with them, but they're taking passages. For example, let me read to you Hebrews 12.22. Just jot it down. You can just listen to this. Hebrews 12.22, the writer of Hebrews is making a lesser to greater. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. In other words, you haven't just come to the old covenant, Mount Sinai. That was a lesser covenant, and they were judged when they were not believing in that and violated it. How much worse is it if you come to the new covenant, to the new Jerusalem, and you throw those promises aside? He says, Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels. So yes, there really is a heavenly Jerusalem that you and I belong to. So how do we put this data together? Here's what God is going to do. When you read, for example, the great promise in Revelation 5.10, that the saints who belong to Christ will one day reign, not straining, or excuse me, strumming a harp, sitting on a cloud. But remember, Revelation 5.10 says, they shall reign upon the earth. And the great promise is that, yes, Jesus Christ is going to bodily return. He's going to establish the earthly Jerusalem. And he'll do so for a thousand years. He will literally have a thousand-year reign, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 5. But after that a thousand-year reign is done, then God gets rid of the old heavens and the old earth, and he brings the new Jerusalem down. 
Now, to prove that we are correct, turn your Bibles to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 17. This is the passage, if you want to say, yes, God is going to have an earthly kingdom followed by the new heavens, the new earth. This is the passage that I think proves it. One of many, but it's a good one to turn to. Zechariah 14, 16 through 17. We'll finish on this. Okay, Zechariah 14, remember the context. This is the same thing that Joel 3 is about. The nations gather around Jerusalem. The Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and he destroys the enemies that surround Jerusalem. Well, when you skip all the way down to verse 16, talking about what happens after that battle, it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So notice all the nations are going to be required to go up to Jerusalem. Verse 17, it says, And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Jesus will require that if you're in one of the nations, you will have to go up to worship him. And if you don't want to, and you don't, he doesn't send rain upon your land. Now, why is that proof of the millennial kingdom? Think of it this way. Is this happening now? Is it happening now that all the nations are being forced to go up to Jerusalem to worship Jesus who's reigning on the throne? Well, no, obviously not. This isn't happening during the church age. But will this happen in eternity when the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem come? No, because all unbelievers will be in the lake of fire. So you won't have any unbelievers that can go up to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Why? Because they're all in the lake of fire after Revelation chapter 20. So if it's not now during the church age, and it can't be after eternity, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, well, when is it? Well, the only time that it can be is during the thousand years when Christ reigns from the earth. Brothers and sisters, what a day that will be. Nothing gives me greater joy than to think about that day when all of the nations are going to be required to go honor him and to praise him. And as you and I are going to go up and we're going to worship God, this is just a foreshadowing of all the nations doing that. You and I are giving a rehearsal dinner, as it were. Every time we have our Lord's Supper, it's a rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all a rehearsal. We're doing a rehearsal today. As Bob preaches, the word of the Lord goes out. It's a foreshadowing because one day Messiah is going to do that. The word of the Lord will go out again. It's all a rehearsal. One day the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. The book of Joel is zealous for that truth. Why? Because God made a promise to the son of David that his throne will be established forever. Yeah, Brian. And we'll close. And go ahead. In fact, Brian, do you want to pray for us after your comment? Sure. As the great Yogi Bear always said, predictions are hard especially those in the future. (laughs) (laughs) With those words of wisdom, let's finish. We can't top that. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much. Very good. We thank you today, Lord, for all your teachings. Uh, We uh, look forward to the day that uh, we uh, reign with you in the... uh, Millennial Kingdom. Uh, We uh, thank you for Eric's teaching today. We look forward to Bob's teaching. Let him be clear and concise on his teaching. And it's in uh, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.